beautiful souls. You are listening to Discovering Amazing Possibilities, part of the Amplify Her Media Network. I wanted to start this episode with some exciting news. Next month, during the month of October, I will be releasing season two of the show, Discovering Amazing Possibilities. And I'm so excited because October actually marks one year since I began creating this podcast, since I began creating content for this podcast. And I wanted to just take a moment to celebrate the milestone because it's a really big deal for me and getting out my comfort zone. And I guess you could call it another personal growth experience for me. Not really knowing what I was doing, not really knowing what the episodes were going to be. I didn't really have a blueprint, but I want to take this time to say I'm very grateful to Christina Singh, who asked me if I wanted to join the Amplify Her Media Podcast Network I said sure, not really knowing what was going to transpire, not really knowing how I could create a community for my podcast, but I did it, and I'm really grateful that I did. So I hope you can join me for season two of Discovering Amazing Possibilities starting in October. My hope for this podcast is to just keep creating content that sparks inspiration to keep creating content that even if only one person listens to the show, I've done my job. One person heard the episode. Or maybe it's more than one person. And that's even better. So, what amazing possibilities have you not considered in your life today? Today is going to be a little bit longer of an episode because I have a very special guest with me on the show. Her name is Meli Ramirez. Meli Ramirez is a 36-year-old Mexican-born woman who is a wife and mother to three beautiful boys. She's an active duty sailor who has served in the United States Navy for 14 and a half years. Her passion is connecting with others and sharing the struggles of women to raise awareness about the lack of equality and the amount of discrimination women experience daily. As a previously undocumented person, Melly experienced immigration, domestic violence, sexual assault, deportation, discrimination, and assimilation firsthand. Her experiences are what drove her to create the Chingonas Only Club podcast with the goal of highlighting the victories and struggles of women, whether it is through parenthood, social relationships, professional settings, or the military itself. Her journey has been one of immense struggle and growth. Over time, she has managed to carve out a life of possibilities and self-actualization and now wishes to continue on her self-discovery while helping other women find a platform of support and encouragement. I wanted to provide a gentle trigger warning for today's episode. Some of the topics discussed are a little bit heavy and maybe triggers for those of you listening. So if the topics of domestic violence, immigration, sexual assault, 
deportation and assimilation are triggers for you, I would invite you to skip this episode and join us for the next one. Welcome, Melly. Thank you so much for being on the show today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited. And like I said, I'm very nervous for some reason. (laughs) Well, that's okay. That makes two of us. From what I've learned about you, you have a very powerful and unique story. So for those listeners, can you share some of your story and give us a sense of who Melly is and how that shaped who you are? Yeah. So first, obviously, uh, Melly Ramirez. I'm 36 years old, uh, Mexican-born woman. And, you know, obviously now I live in the United States. So I grew up as an undocumented person all the way until I was 21 years old. And that is pretty much the core of where everything that I've built, essentially who I am, started. So, you know, my experiences as an undocumented child, uh, my experiences as an undocumented teenager and later an undocumented adult, because they were all very drastically different. And then having to make that shift over going from, you know, living in a constant state of fear, hiding and rejection to all of a sudden I found a place where you know, I, I essentially belong to and then joining the military. And, and finally, now at this stage in my life, being able to kind of grow into the person that I am. And um, yeah, that's, that's pretty much the, the overview of it. Um, obviously, you know, there's a lot of trauma that goes along with growing up undocumented, I, I did experience deportation, I did grow up in an abusive household you know, experience everything from, you know, my, my dad doing drugs, domestic violence with my mother, and all of these things that no child should ever really have to experience along with, you know, the fact that we were essentially second class citizens my entire life, just because we weren't legalized here in this country. And so it's definitely been a growth experience, for sure. And, and you know, here I am today. Oh, thank you so much for getting a little bit vulnerable and sharing your your story. I really appreciate that. So today on the podcast, we're going to be talking about going from survival, uh, shifting your mindset from this this sense or this notion of survival to creating a life of possibility for yourself, like you mentioned a little bit in the beginning. So what are some of the things you did to really shift your mindset from just simply surviving? as an undocumented immigrant to seeing that you can create more possibilities for yourself? So I will say that it, it took, you know, really my entire life um, to get here. Um, and it's something that I didn't know was happening until it happened. So it wasn't like a uh, part of it, I would say was intentional. Once I got to a point of a, a certain point of growth, but most of it was, was unintentional right? All of the experiences that happened to me were not because I wanted them. You know, obviously, like I, I, the way I grew up, the way um, I experienced my, my, my parents, the way that, you know, I, as I mentioned in in my podcast, um, you know, as a child, no child should ever have to live in, in in a domestic 
abuse situation and endure that and watch their their mother be assaulted the manner in which my mother was no child should ever have to be abandoned by her parents the way I was like no no kid should ever have to live that way and so when all of these things were happening to me and I was growing up I I struggled a lot with the acceptance piece of it I was constantly, you know, in a state of why me, almost like a perpetual like pity party, (laughs) because it was always why me, why do these things happen to me? Uh, Why did I have to be undocumented? Why did my dad have to do drugs? Why did my dad have to be abusive? Why did we, uh, why couldn't people just let us exist in this country? Like we're good people. My mom's a hard worker. I'm a good student. And it was almost trying to rationalize all the bad things and trying to find out why it was that they were happening to me. And over time, I stopped asking and I started accepting, which was also a really bad time in my life. Because when you accept that bad things are supposed to happen to you, then you stop caring. You know, you're kind of in a state of, well, they're going to happen regardless of what I do. It doesn't matter if I'm a good person or a bad person. The suffering is going to continue. The rejection is going to continue. The abuse is going to continue. This country is never going to accept me as one of their own, no matter what I do. And so I got really angry at that point. And that was in my teenage years. Right. And, and my my poor mother, she was the one that had to <laughs> endure that horrible stage of my life <laughs> because, you know, she was the closest thing to me. So I, I kind of focused on my anger on my mother. I stopped asking why it was happening to me and I started more blaming her and, and using her as the why. Like, you know, she married my dad. So it's her fault. She brought me to this country. So it's her fault. She, you know, left me in Mexico when I was four. So it was her fault, right? None of it was my dad's fault because it was almost like he was only there. But I knew that he, like, it didn't matter. It wouldn't hurt him if I blamed him or not. But I knew that it would hurt my mom. And it was almost like I I needed to, I needed someone to hurt like I hurt. Almost to, to kind of reconcile that pain and that you know, those hardships or whatnot. And that was a really, um, really difficult, difficult time. And I I genuinely didn't think that I was going to come out of it. And I think my mom knew that because she allowed me to just take out all my anger on her. She allowed me to blame her for all of the things that were happening, even though she had no, you know, she had no way of knowing any of these things. The only thing she ever wanted was a better life for us. There's a reason why she risked her life bringing us to this country, my, my brother and I. Unfortunately, I didn't see it that way. Everything that was happening around us was happening to me, not to us. And in that sense, I was an extremely selfish child, which I think most children are. <laughs> you can't think of a world outside of yourself. Things happen to you, not to your family, not to, you know, anyone else. It's always about you. And I think that was probably the big shift when I started to experience things outside of myself and realize that the way that I was treated as an undocumented person wasn't just happening to me. 
immigration is an issue that has plagued this country for a very, very long time. And there are so many people out there who have experienced the same things that I have. And it's something that happened to us. It's something that has been happening to, let's say, me and my people and, and everybody else who has decided to immigrate to this country illegally, right? Because that's that's the, the difference. There's certain things that you share with people who come here legally from another country, like assimilation, culture shock, and those things. But when you come here illegally, there's a whole different set of rules and repercussions that are in store just for that specific group. And when I started to see that it wasn't just a me issue and it was a, you know, us as a country issue and, and us as a people issue, um, I started to look at it and feel about it way differently because instead of trying to answer the why, which is way beyond my control, like I cannot, I alone cannot change the laws. I alone cannot, you know, change legislature, like none of that. Like it's not something that is within my control to do. And I realized that the only thing that I'm able to control is myself, how I react to it, how I overcome it, how I grow out of it, how I learn from it, how can I teach others about it. That's when that big realization of, oh, crap, this is not my mom's fault. (laughs) This is not, you know, any one person's fault. Like this is this is a human rights issue. This is a worldwide issue. We're not the only country who experiences immigration and domestic violence was the same thing. Like my mom wasn't the only person to ever experience domestic violence. And I was not the only child that had to live through it. This was a societal issue that we have over time allowed to get to the point to where it is now and not enough people are doing anything about it. And there aren't enough resources for women and children in those positions. And when I started to look at issues that way, um, instead of trying to figure out why my mom didn't leave sooner, uh, which now I can see it's obvious there's no way she could have, she was terrified. I was able to experience things more from her perspective and it allowed me to become more empathetic to her situation because it was her situation, right? I wasn't the one experiencing the domestic violence. It impacted me, heavily impacted me, but she was the one that was being physically assaulted, abused. And I never stopped to consider what it did to her when I was a kid. And so all of those things, everything that happened, like I started to kind of experience this. These are, these are society issues. These are women's issues. These are, um, patriarchal type issues right sexual harassment sexual assault domestic violence and and it wasn't a me issue and I I was able to start to grow and say all right so how are we going to get past this because so far I have let this kind of build me enrage me anger me um, make me a callous unkind individual and I'm not ashamed to admit that that's how I was when I was younger um, but that's how I was. And how how do I get out of it? Like, how do I pull myself out? Um, and I think the first thing was just having those really difficult self-reflections, because having to admit that you were completely wrong about everything is really hard. And until you you can do that, you can't even take a first step. You can't even say, I want to start healing. I want to start 
understanding. I want to start growing. You can't do any of that until you start to admit like where your own guilt and what part did you play in all of this. Um, and that's really, really hard to do to say that you were wrong about all of it. I think it's something that I, I still I still do now, even at this stage. Uh, self-reflection really just never ends, right? You you because even though you think you're on the right path, you're you can still take a misstep and you're like, oh, like I shouldn't have said that or I shouldn't have done that. Um, and that was wrong of me to do. That's still hard to admit, no matter how good or big a person you think you are, you've become like you're human, like it, it happens. And so I think now I try to approach things from an outsider's perspective, even though they're my, my issues, the things that are happening to me, I just try to approach them from the beginning from that, that type of almost outlook to see if I can, if I can see a different solution, if I can do, you know, maybe this isn't even an issue or a problem or something that should be bothering me, holding me back, concerning me, whatever the case may be, just by like taking a look, almost like stepping out of myself and just looking at the problem from a different angle, just before I even start to get mad or happy or whatever. <laughs> if that answers your question. Definitely. I can definitely resonate with what, uh, a lot of what you talked about, you know, this whole wanting your mom to suffer as much as you are suffering, but in actuality, you're also growing through that too, you know, and how your relationship is, I'm only imagining a lot different now than yeah. when you were a teenager or young. Um, and I know you mentioned on your podcast before that your mom was also very young. Yes. When she had you. Yes. <laughs> so, it was almost as if you two were sisters and she didn't get that time in her life to be a teenager. Yeah, no, she had me when she was 16. And so when I was 16, my mom was what, 32. And, you know, a lot of people don't think that's a big difference until you're 32. And when you're 32, you're like, wow, I'm so immature. <laughs> but then you think about the growth that you yourself made from when you were 16 to when you were 32. And even when you were 25 to when you were 32. And when now I look back and I'm like, wow, when I was 16, I was an absolute child, right? And my mom, when she was 16, she had a child. She had a baby. At, at 17 and a half, 18 years old, she took me and my brother and she crossed, you know, the Rio Grande to come to this country illegally with us on her back. Like we could have all drowned. And, and she, as a kid, I don't even understand like the fear, right? The fear and, and also the, the hope of like survival that she had to experience to get through that journey and then to get to this country and be met with such terrible violence from my father. That was, I mean, that just kind of blows my mind now because I think of, you know, when I was 18, I too experienced some pretty terrible things. Like I was deported when I was 18 and I remember how I felt when I was deported. And, and, and it was weird because we had totally different experiences, right? She came to this country and she was alone in this country, learning a new language, new culture, no family, no friends, no support, 
two small children. I was deported to the country to which I was born and I still had no family, no friends, no support. I was relearning the culture because I didn't grow up there. Uh, I was trying to find myself in a totally different country, just like my mom had years before me and two totally almost it's almost felt like two parallel universes that were happening and we were experiencing the exact same things at different times of our lives and that's when it hit me I remember when I got deported and I was in Mexico I how much I missed my family how much I missed my mom my brothers and I remember crying every night wishing that none of these things happened to me and that I could just I would do anything to just be home, whatever it was like, I, I, I want to be home. I just one more day with my family because I never thought I'd see them again. And I'm like, my mom felt that too. You know, she left her parents and her siblings behind, you know, yeah, granted she had her two babies, but probably wish that she had someone who loved her and cared for her and could bring her some sort of comfort. And she didn't have that. And it was then that I understood her. And said, like, I've judged my mom so harshly because she experienced this and she had two kids. Everything that I had experienced and then some was how her journey had started or, 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 you know, gone. And it was devastating to have that realization because, you know, not only was it like, oh, man, my mom's like a really great person, but I'm a horrible person. I was a horrible individual. And to be that selfish and to be that self-centered and to miss that completely, that was devastating for me to, to come to that realization and to ask myself, how in the hell was she still there? I almost felt undeserving of her love, unworthy of everything that she had ever done and sacrificed for me. Like I did not deserve all her pain and suffering is essentially what what happened at that stage. And that was, I would say almost, I would say my grief, my grief stage, because initially it was like just, you know, confusion and anger. And then here in this stage, I was extremely just sad that I had hurt the person that loved me most on earth right? Because she was all I had at that point. You know, a mother's love is different. And now that I have kids, I know that a mother's love, in most cases, <laughs> is unconditional, right? Like there's, there's no strings attached. At least um, I know that there wasn't for, for my mom and, and the love that she had for me. There was, there was no conditions to her love. Like it wasn't, you have to be a good person for me to love you. You have to be, you know, selfless and kind, No, she loved me at my worst possible points in life. And at that point, I felt like I just didn't deserve any of it. Like she was too good for me almost. And that broke me uh, completely. it, It devastated me. You would think that that realization would be like, oh, I get it now. Let's move on. No, it was almost like it did the, the opposite at first because I pushed her away because I didn't want her to continue suffering for me anymore. It was almost like I had accepted my circumstances. At that point, I had been deported to Mexico for two years. 
had no idea if I, if I was ever actually going to come back to this country, if I was even going to be allowed. And I think I had just gave up. I, I had given up. I figured I would never hear back from immigration uh, or my lawyer or anybody. Um, and they had forgotten about me. And my friends forgot about me. When I left, I had a lot of friends. And, and when I just disappeared and, and it just seemed like the earth just swallowed me up and they didn't even realize it. And that was really hard too. When you realize that there's only one person that cares about you, really, that was eye-opening. And that because it's something you see always parents tell their kids, like, your friends don't care about you. I care about you. <laughs> and I'm like, your friends care about you. But when that happened, everybody just kind of like the world kept moving, right? I was plucked right out of it and the world just kept moving. Everything just kept happening day, night, day, night, over and over again. And I was the one that was like paused and I just got to watch it. I, I remember just seeing my friends go to college because we had what MySpace back then. And so I would go on MySpace and I would see their pictures and they were like off to college. They were getting married. They were on vacationing. Their whole lives just continued on the same trajectory. And I was just kind of like on the sidelines, just watching all this, this thing that used to be my life and not be in it. And that was really hard because it was literally like one of those very uh, depressive moments of, wow, like I could just disappear from the earth. I could just die tomorrow. And the only person that would miss me would be my mother. That was really hard. Like you said, my mom was very young. And I just never gave her any credit for, for the growth that she had, that she had done herself and that I had to do when I, when it hit me, it hit me pretty hard. I just, a lot of guilt more than anything. Wow. Sounds like your mom was one of your biggest allies during that time as well. And she saw a lot of possibilities for you, even though you were deported. And it sounds like she had a lot of hope regardless of whatever happened. Yeah. And I don't know if it's a parent thing, right? (laughs) It's like your parents are supposed to be your biggest cheerleaders. And like I said, that's not always the case. But in my case, it was my mom has always been like, if I tell her I want to go climb a mountain, she's like, awesome. If anyone can do it, you can. And, you know, you kind of laugh it off because I know my mom. And I, if I told her I want to go be president of the United States, she'd be like, yeah, we need you. Be What's like, your relationship with her now? Like, oh, so, so how it's is really, it so different? It's, it's really different because I think, like I said back there, she was so young that she didn't know how to be a mom. Like she knew that she loved me and she knew that she wanted to support me and be there no matter what. But in the manner in which she handled our arguments and our like everything, our tumultuous relationship. Um, it was more like, like a sister, more like having a sibling. I remember when she would reprimand me, you could see, like, I knew which buttons to push, right? Cause kids usually do. I knew which buttons to push to kind of snap her out of mom mode. And she would just snap into teenager mode and we would start arguing back and forth. And every parent knows that you're not supposed to argue back and forth with your kids because then they just bait you and you end up like just not 
like losing your cool and, and you're not, you stop being the parent. It, like, I just knew that, that those were the buttons to push. And so she acted like a sibling. And, and so we fought like siblings, which if you've had siblings, like, you know, those, those fights get really ugly, unnecessarily so. And, and you should never fight with your parents like that. And so I did with my mom and, and I never really valued any of her input and everything she said. And I was like, she's crazy. Like <laughs> there's, there's no value in what she's saying. And like I said, that was because I was selfish. And I didn't see that she was speaking from a place of like experience and, and, and love you know, having that realization was one thing, but still, I told you, like, I pushed her away because I, I didn't want her near me. I didn't feel like whatever hardship I experienced, she had to experience. And it was almost like a way of me protecting her from myself. I want her to keep her safe from me more than anything, because at that point, I had no idea what would happen to me, who I was. I was very unpredictable, my emotionally, and I just kind of pushed her away. Um, until I had my first child. And I was never close with my mom. Like I never was like, Oh, mom, I have a boyfriend or mom, I'm gonna, you know, I was never that, that person, like, everything was a secret with me, right? Everything was my own life. Like, I don't want you a part of it. And, and she always still was a part of it. Like, she always made sure she was a part of it. And when I had my first baby, I had a really awful labor. It was about 33 hours of the most excruciating pain ever. And th- there were so many people there uh, from my husband's side of the family. It was like his mom, his sister, his brother, his sister-in-law. There's just so many people there wait- in the waiting room just like to support and just concerned. And I could care less. I didn't want any of those people there. I was like, I don't care. I don't want, I don't want you here. I only want my mom. I just want my mom here because the only person who could have at that point convinced me that everything was going to be okay. If she said it was, was my mom. If my mom would have been there to tell me you can do this, I would have believed her. I didn't believe it when anybody else said it, like their words just kind of fell flat. I'm like, you don't know me. How do you know if I can do this? And and it sounds silly, but like at that moment, I knew that I needed my mother more than I needed anybody else in the world. And my mom, because she's an illegal immigrant, um, and I had my baby in uh, Balboa Medical Center, which is a naval hospital, because I was already in the Navy at that point. Um, she couldn't travel there because there's an immigration checkpoint between Los Angeles and San Diego. And, and along the 10 freeway. And so if she went to see me have my baby, there was a chance that she could get deported. And I wasn't going to risk that. So my mom, no matter how much I cried and called for her, she couldn't come. And that was devastating to me. And I remember just laying in that room in the dark with my baby. And I, and I was like, this is the most alone I have ever felt in my entire life because my mom wasn't there. She wasn't there to comfort me. Like she wasn't there to annoy me even because she's one of those like traditional Mexican ladies where they're trying to rub stuff on you and give you teas and things. 
<laughs> which would typically annoy me, but I would have given anything for my mom to offer me to rub dicks on my back at that point. <laughs> and I was like, like, what am I, what am I doing? Of course I need my mom. Of course. What child doesn't need their parent? And after that, I made it a point to me, myself, take whatever steps I needed to take to, to go see my mom, to let her be a grandma, to love her and, and talk to her and communicate with her. And, and, and I did. I talked to her about a lot of stuff, mostly, you know, boundaries, because I wanted to make sure that this relationship had longevity, that it wasn't like a, like a roller coaster, right? That we had highs and lows. Like I just wanted us to be okay. And so with that came boundaries um, that I had to set of like, hey, like I need a mom. I need your love, your advice, your comfort. I don't want your criticism, your, your, your doubts and your fears because I have a lot of that already. I already doubt myself. I'm already terrified of having this baby while being in the military away from home. Like I didn't need any more like insecurities. And so I talked to her about that and, and she said, okay. And I told her that I wanted to raise my kids and she just needed to trust that she raised me well enough to raise them without her criticizing me because Mexican moms are notorious for being the worst critics to their daughters. And I was like, mom, I'm telling you right now, I am not built for that. I don't have the patience. <laughs> I don't have the bandwidth. We don't have that type of like foundation for you to think it's okay to just like criticize me about parenting or, or you know, being a wife or whatever. And she's like, you're right. You don't. <laughs> so, <laughs> and so we, um, we just came to this agreement of, you know, we're going to continue our relationship but we're gonna add you know mutual respect into the mix which I think as parents we forget to give our kids we are so worried about telling them what to do and how to do it that we forget to respect their needs and their boundaries and and so we decided to make that like a almost like a core part of of our relationship it's it's not just I respect you because you're my mother I respect you because you're a woman. I respect you because you're a person because you're the grandmother of my children and then so on and so forth. And she had to not just respect me as her daughter, but as a mother, as a wife and, and understand that, you know, my experiences shaped me, her experiences shaped her and we just have to find middle ground. And so we have a great relationship. I love her and I love talking to her. Uh, I don't agree with everything she does or says and neither does she. She's not changed her way at its core. She's still, you know, a mom and grandma, but it's, it is different. Definitely. Cause I, I can say like, Hey, that's a line you're crossing. And she's like, okay. And that took us the 30 years. <laughs> I think we have a good relationship. I appreciate you for sharing all that. Um, sounds like you've grown a ton from yes. where you were in life. And um, almost as if you had to burn it all down to then rise from the ashes and grow and learn not only about yourself, yourself, but about the relationships in your life and 
how you wanted to show up in relationships and how, or not how, but how you needed people in your life, such as your mom to show up Mm -hmm. for you. Yeah. You know, you didn't need a best friend. You needed a mom and you need also needed her to just be a grandma to her grandkids. Yeah. And that's really beautiful that you're now able to do that and set boundaries because I'm sure growing up, you didn't really have that model of how to set boundaries or even what the definition of boundaries was. I had had no idea you could do that. (laughs) Yeah. Oh my gosh, this is what healthy boundaries or boundaries even begin to look like. Mm -hmm. And these are the boundaries I want to set for me, not for somebody else, but for me, right? Yes. In my life. And by setting those boundaries, that's how I can best heal also and create. Yes. Right. Amazing possibilities Mm -hmm. and share those possibilities with people who are closest in my life, who people I love and care about the most are my allies. So who are some of those allies that you have in your life? I know probably your mom, but (laughs) are there any others? And were there any people you had as allies when you were going through those really tough times? And are they the same people today? Or do you have new people that are your allies? So, um, yes, I would say, I don't think I, I realized it at the time, mm-hmm. but yes, um, my brother was one of them. He, he and I uh, used to be at each other's throats all the time because we're only a year apart. And I think when I, when I left my home, because I, I actually left my mother's house before I got deported because um, of the tumultuous relationship I had with my brother. We were, we, we would physically just fight. Um, there wasn't a day that we could be in the same room and not just be hurtful and unkind to one another. Part of it, I think, was I... One, we had never seen anything different, right? Like all we experienced growing up was men and women fighting, physically fighting and hurting each other, verbally fighting and hurting each other. And so to me and to him at that time, I think it was very normal to do that. Um, But my mom, I think, held a weird resentment for me in particular. and. I don't think it's something that she realized that she did. And it was part of her growth journey. I was my dad's like favorite person in the world. My dad never laid a finger on me, but everybody else in the house was not off limits. They got to experience his physical and verbal abuse. I was merely a witness to it all. And that kind of created resentment, I think, against me because I was his daughter and I looked like him and in a sense he and I are very much alike very extreme just personality at least we were when I was younger and I think my mom saw me in him and she was just very resentful And so no matter what happened with my brother and I, no matter if he started it or whatever, it was always my fault. Um, My brother was always innocent. My brother was always protected. And 
my mom was fierce about her protection from my brother. And I think this is also common in, in, in Latino households. Mothers and their sons. Oh, my goodness. That is a whole different topic. So I left. I left the house. And, and so my, my, but when I got to Mexico, like, I grew up with this kid, right? Like, we went through everything together. You know, I used to, I used to grab him and hide him from my dad because when my, my dad was done with my mom, he would move on to my little brother and I used to protect him. And so in a sense, like we, we grew together. And when I left, the only person I wanted to see, like I needed my mom as more for me as a support, but I wanted to see my brother so bad. I wanted to just sit down because my, my brother and I have this weird relationship where, you know, we grew up in a very like non-expressive household. Like we didn't tell each other, we love each other. We didn't like none of that. We show our love and affection through jokes, right? We poke fun at each other. Like that's how it is. Like we don't say, I love you. We say, you look weird today. (laughs) And so all I wanted was to be in the same room as my brother and, and, you know, we say just shit talk each other and laugh and poke fun at his hair or whatever it is that he's wearing for that day. And, you know, let him do the same thing and just laugh about it because that was how that was kind of our love language, right, to one another and is genuine laughs. And I used to tell um, my husband this, that because him and his siblings, they get along like normal people. And it's so strange. <laughs> It was so strange for me to witness it or they're like, oh, hi. And they give each other a hug and a kiss and they're like, oh, I love you. I'll talk to you soon. And I'm like, it was so bizarre to me, but um, I needed that, that for my brother. And so even though we were in horrible, on horrible terms when I got deported, once I was deported, he used to write to me, he used to call me um, and he used to send me music. Um, he wanted to make sure that I stayed like up to date. And since I was in this middle town, we're in middle of nowhere, little Mexican town, there was no internet, there was no running water. He would wanted to make sure that I stayed current. And so he would make me, you know, for those young kids that don't understand, but for the older people, like he would burn me CDs <laughs> and he would send them to me in the mail. And I would be so excited. I'm like, you know, he, he, and it was, of course he was super biased because it was all the stuff he liked. And I didn't care. I was just like, all right, let me listen to this. And he used to keep me kind of going through, through his love for music. And I connected a lot of the songs. And I think I just told myself that in those songs that he was putting on these CDs, that somewhere in there, he was just telling me how he felt and that he loved me and that he missed me. And, and I would just pick and choose whichever songs those were. (laughs) He probably didn't think that much about it, but they meant the world to me because I was always alone. I didn't know anybody. The entire two years that I was there, I was alone. And that became kind of a part of me, like me getting up, feeling whatever I was feeling that day and putting on some music and, you know, picking up a book that he had sent me because he would send me books sometimes to read because he knows I love to read. That was he was a, a big ally for me during that time. Of course, once I came back, my husband and I, um, we started seeing each other. And oh, I tried to get rid of him. I really did. I pushed him away so bad. 
<laughs> I was like, would you just leave me alone? Like, I'm not ready for this. Whatever this mushy thing you're trying to do, like, I'm not there yet. And I was so, I was so blunt and mean to him, like, because I, I just wasn't ready to accept anyone's love. And I think that's what it was. And he, this man just wanted to love me. And I was like, I go find someone else. And he didn't, he stuck around and stuck around and through it all, he supported me. He understood my weird relationship with my family, my siblings, my mom. He understood that I was not an outwardly, you know, people say like, what's your love language? Well, like I didn't have one. I didn't have a love language. Like I can't relate to any of those things. Those things are all so weird to me because that's not how I grew up. And, and I think for him, he had to be extremely patient to look past that, right? And understand that just the fact that I allowed him to sit next to me when I was not okay, like that was my love language. I like you, you can sit right by me. So my husband was a big part of it because through his patience, I realized that, you know, not only that people can love you and that you can accept people to love you, but people will love you exactly the way you are if they truly love you. And I think that's something that was a huge kind of growth point for me because growing up, I always felt like just from what I experienced and saw was that you had to make people love you, right? You had to, and I think that comes, you know, that's all trauma, right? You had to earn your love. Yeah, you had to earn your love. You had to, I felt like I had to make my mom love me, to look past her resentment for my father. And I had to like make her love me and show her that she could just love me, that I had to, you know, my dad had to make my mom love him, even if that meant physically abusing her into it. You know, his jealousy, his rage of her, like even looking or glancing at another man, that was my dad loving my mother, right? That's how I grew up. And so my husband showed me that I didn't have to make him love me. If anything, I tried to get him to get away from me, right? Like he just loved me. He loved every, everything about me, the good, the bad, the ugly. And he was willing to allow me to find my way through and sift through all of my feelings and emotions until I figured out that it was okay to let him. And that, that I think has made him probably my biggest ally in, in this journey. You know, we've been married for 12 years. We've been dating for four, like together for 14, but I've known him since I was seven. Wow. (laughs) So, so we never dated or anything. Like we just went to all the same schools and you cross paths. Yeah. And 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 it's so in and out of each other's lives throughout the year, our whole lives. And I actually had a crush on him and I wrote in his yearbook and he ran away from me. It's so crazy to him because right. He saw me at school. He saw me, you know, throughout our whole lives. 
And when I tell him all the things that were happening when he was seeing me at school and he was just seeing me exist, like it, it's, it's heartbreaking to him because, you know, he had no idea. And I think that's a big lesson in people in general, that things look so normal to, uh, to people outside looking in because I held so much resentment towards everybody around me. I was like, why the F doesn't anybody do something to help us? Why doesn't anybody help my mom? And why doesn't anybody help us? And, and, and just like makes our life better. Like, why are people so unkind? Well, nobody knew. And that was part of the thing that made me and put me in that stage of just perpetual anger you couldn't reveal it to anyone. Right. Nobody knew that they, that I needed help. And in retrospect, I never asked, honestly, I mean, there wasn't anything they could do. It wasn't like it is now, right? Undocumented students, they have DACA. And it's such a great, like big thing to be able to, I mean, we have lawyers and doctors who are not legal citizens of this country, who are still undocumented and only functioning under the DACA program. And that could have never been it, not when I was a student. My brother is a DACA recipient and he, to this day, is still waiting for, you know, to become a permanent resident. He's he's still undocumented, mm-hmm. but it's different. He has the ability to work to go see, I mean he graduated with his bachelor's and he he works for a uh, nonprofit law firm for undocumented immigrants so he is like giving back and, and I'm so proud of him but it's one of those things where I'm like how come I didn't have that like how come that didn't exist when I was going through this because it could have made the, a world of difference I would have never been deported I think it was meant to be that way I guess it was and, all part of the journey yeah, all part of sure. Melly Ramirez's journey yeah. And so my husband, my husband's amazing. I would say he, he, he loves me. And I think that that was something that I needed in my life. I needed unconditional and, and he's there for me. And, and that's, that's all I needed. I needed a constant unconditional in my life. And he became that person for me. And he taught me the right way to love people. And we're openly affectionate with our, like, in front of our kids like our kids get to see us like kiss each other good morning and good night and get to see us talk about our days and you know their dad just tell me I look nice even though I look like a hag when I wake up in the morning like they get to witness like what love is supposed to look like and and you know happiness is supposed to look like with no strings attached right and I think that's super important um and every single day that he does that for me is a day that I feel like I get closer to just good because I, I almost feel like a, I have so much bad just from all the stuff that I, I did and said to my mom. It's almost like a never ending like debt that I feel like I have to repay. But like every single day that I get to be in love with my family, I'm like one day closer to just being better and, and kinder. And it's so beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> So is there anything that you do daily for yourself that reminds you of the amazing possibilities in your life? Yeah, I think that I stop limiting myself. You know, growing up, that was all I experienced. It was like, you can't do this. You can't do that. You can't. I couldn't even talk about the things that I wanted to do. I couldn't want 
period. And I think now I try to allow myself to want things and allow myself by, by telling myself that it's okay. It doesn't mean I'm not happy with where I am, which I think was some of the association with it because, you know, growing up, if I ever said, I wish I had a better life, my mom is like, you did, you do. You would have had a worse life had I not brought you here. And so you subconsciously, you develop this guilt of like, you know, this guilt that you experience when you, when you want something, because people make you think like, why can't you just be satisfied with what you have? And it's not because you're ungrateful. And so I try to take myself off the hook when I find myself wanting more and allow myself to just experience and really just go for it. I, you know, starting my podcast was one of them. When people who have a podcast, they understand because they're like, yeah, like it's, it's fun. It's for me. It's something I do because I want to do it. It's nothing. It's not for anybody else. But when I talk to people who are like, why, why would you want to do that? Like I have a full-time job, right? I'm active duty. I'm an active duty chief. And uh, my days are filled already. I have three boys under 11 and my husband, my dogs, I travel a lot for work. And people are like, well, why would you want to on top of that, do this podcast? and stress yourself out about recording episodes and doing, you know, things. And I'm like, well, it's because it's for me. And because while I've been in the Navy for 14 and a half years, like this isn't, this isn't me. And, and people have a really difficult time reconciling that because I'm really good at my job, not to toot my own horn, but like people know that I'm really good at my job and that if I wanted to, stay in for 30 years in in the Navy and and get as high up as I want to get. And it baffles them when I'm like, I don't want to. This isn't my passion. You know, this isn't my dream. like, but you're so good at it. I was like, but that's just because I take pride in everything that I do. If you told me to wash dishes, I'd be the best damn dishwasher you ever had. That's just my personality because growing up as an undocumented person, you have to do things 10 times better than everybody else because you have to prove your worth. That's a trauma thing Mm. that people don't understand. You have to prove your worth at everything that you do. If you give me an opportunity to wash your dishes, I'm going to be amazing at it (laughs) because I'm supposed to be grateful for the opportunity, right? That that's trauma. 100%. So that was a big deal for you, shifting from the mindset of I'm unworthy or I'm not deserving to then, well, hey, of course I'm worthy and deserving. That and I can want and I can dream and I can create possibilities for my life and in my world. Yeah. No, it feels amazing because I am not doing something for somebody else. I'm not trying to prove to anybody that I'm the world's best podcaster. I'm not trying to prove to anybody that I'm the world's best blogger. What I'm trying to do is prove to myself that I can do the things that I love mm-hmm. for me, that I can share my story and I can connect with other people and allow them to feel things. The same things that I felt when I was in my journey, I want them to feel those things. But if they don't, I'm still connecting with them. 
right? And so it's okay. And it's, it's, it's one of those things where I'm, I'm able to create this platform and this world almost that's completely separate from work me and the pleasing me and, and whatever, and, and just say, it's endless, right? I, I just, I talked to you about, you know, I'm starting my blog and I want to, you know, just really take it to a different level. And, you know, I, I talked myself out of it for a while and I'm like, you know what, I'm just going to write. I'm just going to do it. Is that um, one of your passions writing then? Yes. Writing has always been a passion of mine. I'm like, well, maybe I need to go to like school and take more lessons or writing classes, <laughs> or maybe I need to do more research. And like, that's the, uh, you need to be the absolute 100% best at this because you need to prove that if you're going to be the best writer in the world. No, I love writing. I want to just create something out of nothing and I want to just share it with everybody. That's it. And it doesn't have to be an ending to it. Just the fact that I did it makes me feel good. That is an entirely new, I would say, world of possibilities that I've finally been able to reach after this entire journey and I want my kids to see that right I bet they're already seeing it I bet they're already (laughs) absorbing you know what their mom's doing and putting out into the world and um, I hope so it's really amazing (laughs) yeah like it's different because my mom is so proud of me for being in the Navy she's so proud Anybody who's willing to listen, she's like whip out a picture and be like, my daughter's in the Navy and she's chief and show a picture in uniform and she serves this country because she feels like a sense of debt to this patriotism, right? Like someone sold her this dream a long time ago and she feels like she has to see it all the way through to the end. And I don't fault her for it. I, I get it in her mind, it, it, it happened because she brought her kids here and now her daughter's in the serving the, this country. It, to me, I want my kids to say that my mom was a good mom and she was brave because she did the things that she loved. And she taught me how to go after whatever it was that I wanted to do. I want those to be the things that my kids say about me. My mom's always going to brag about my service my family is always going to talk about, you know, you're the first person in this entire family to ever graduate from college, serve in the military, become a U.S. citizen. If my mom would brag about my podcast and if she would brag about my blog, that would be gold for me. So like, tell us about your podcast. <laughs> so my podcast um, is called Chingonas Only Club. And what does that mean? Chingonas. Chingonas. It's a Mexican term. Um, and it's almost like a, an acknowledgement of badassery for men and women. So there's chingones and there's chingonas. Uh, and it's the only term I think that I could, that I can think of in Mexican lingo that puts women and men at, you know, equal. Um, there's no distinction between a chingona and a chingon you basically can do anything you put your mind to whatever it is physical mentally like emotionally you're chingona and to me it's one of the highest forms of like a compliment from a stranger that you can get like they would see you doing something like oh you get up there you give a speech and they'll be like oh chingona like that was good (laughs) like you know they see you lifting something heavy they see you taking care of your kids and that's just what they call you like you're a badass woman like 
strong, independent, whatever it is, like it, it, it's an, it encompasses everything. And so Chingona's Only Club was my way of creating a platform to share my stories um, and the stories of women around me, mainly, right? My mother was my, my inspiration for it all to show women that you don't have to be an astronaut, a doctor, an astrophysicist to be a chingona. We're chingonas every single day. Just the fact that we're women living in this society with all of the shit that goes on every single day and we manage to thrive in it, that in itself makes you chingona. And so I wanted to just kind of create this, this platform for, for women, women's issues to talk, tell real women's stories, struggles and ideas and talk about them openly and, and just say like, hey, we're here let's connect, let's talk about this issue and let's find a way forward because I think a lot of women feel alone a lot of the times, mm-hmm. the issues and things that we experience. Yeah, I think that's really important. So yeah. is, the, is the word chingona, is that specific, specific to Latinas and Latinos? or So, so it is a, uh, I think it's a Mexican slang word. Okay. But um, no, I would say anyone can be a chingona. So, okay. you know, if you're not a Latina and you get called a chingona, just say thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and so anyone, um, I definitely call my friends that. I'm like, dang, chingonas. And it's funny, they've adopted the term and they don't even speak Spanish. Both men and women can be it. So <laughs> well, that's so awesome. Thank you for sharing about your podcast. And I think we're getting to the end of our time. Where can people find you? um spotify itunes anchor um really just the major um platforms amazon also i have a website it's chingonasonlyclub.com uh and you can just kind that's where the blog is located and uh instagram is at chingonasonlyclub and i also use tiktok at chingonasonlyclub so those are my major social media platforms thank you so much for agreeing to come on my podcast today you didn't seem nervous at all it was just the flow of the discussion was so organic okay I'm glad I'm like I I feel like I was talking so much at times um because I just get so into the conversation if you haven't yet listened to Chingonas Only Club podcast I would highly recommend it it is so so good Millie really has a way of storytelling and speaking about topics that others might not understand I really appreciate her vulnerability and transparency and the way that she created a platform to give a voice to others, others that might not be brave enough to speak up on these difficult topics. Keep bringing the real conversations because I know the world needs more of that. So check it out. Season two of the podcast kicks off October 3rd. And be sure to check out the blog, chingonasonlyclub.com. You can follow Melly on Instagram and TikTok at chingonasonlyclub. If you enjoyed today's episode or were inspired by something you heard, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show so you don't miss any episodes. And if you feel called to, you can connect with me on my website, iamcarmenshields.com, or over on Instagram at amazingpossibility. And I want to leave you with this last and final thought today. What amazing possibilities have you not considered in your life today?